So this is really a <clears throat> retreat, a course on the theme, on the subject, exploring the themes of eros and desire and the alchemy of desire. And so I want to uh, take a little time now over the next few talks to begin to delineate what we mean when we use this word eros, what we mean when we use this word eros. Um, so to begin to do that, um, uh, as as you'll quickly see, the way we're using that word is actually woven in with a whole web, if you like, a whole dynamic web of other words that we're using, um, specifically, quite specifically, uh, related ideas, related notions, related experiences. Um, so we'll have to kind of gradually unfold all this, unpack it, if you like, or gradually um, reverse analogy, build uh, a framework, an architecture um, that will help us here build our ship or our vehicle. Um, so in the course of doing that um, and explaining or unpacking a little bit, elaborating is a better word, elaborating a bit um, on what gradually what we mean by eros and uh, what it involves and what it implies, etc., and <clears throat> where it goes. Um, in the course of delineating, um, the question comes up, why? Why delineate? And we've touched on that briefly already, but there's actually more to say. Why make this extra delineation of something called eros? Uh, and because we have a lot of words, like we said, we have desire, craving, clinging, attachment, love, you know. So why make this extra delineation? I want to say a bit more about that. And I also want to um, weave into all this just some reflections on making delineations and definitions in general. Um, so some general reflections on that, because actually it is very relevant to um, the whole project that we're doing and where it can go. So, you know, um, unless you teach in some way or other, um, in some subject or uh, art or whatever it is, um, you, it may not be obvious to you, but it's obvious to me that teaching is always, always contextual. So that in talking about Eros now, there is the context, uh, there's a double context at least. One is the context of um, how did we get here? Where, what is it that led up to these kind of delineations? And making the delineations and the justifications and the explanations that um, we're about to go into slowly, gradually, um, that comes out of a whole trajectory, a whole progression of exploration and insight um, that in a way led, uh, one thing led to the other, one thing unfolded another. So there's the context of where we're coming from. And in a way, and as I'll go into this later, you know, I'm coming from a background in insight meditation, but a certain way of understanding and approaching um, what insight meditation is and what the Dharma is and uh, how to think of that. 
Um, but there's also the context of who one is talking to, who, who, who one is teaching, and the, the context in which one teaches. So that um, teaching about eros and desire and shining a different light on them um, in a Buddhist context and in an insight meditation context is is a certain context. It's not necessarily the easiest or most straightforward context to raise these issues and and hope to f- have some some fresh uh, bring some fresh illumination or fresh turning of the earth, if you like. There's other context, um, for instance, in um, I don't know. So, so psychotherapeutic context or, or philosophical context, if you like that, uh, where in a way it would be much more straightforward. There would still be um, distinctions and things to make, but in some ways, the context that we're in makes it um, more challenging. Um, but also, we, we're lent certain advantages, I think, by our practice and by our understanding that, that other disciplines and directions don't have. Um, but about the context, um, I remember um, an international uh, meeting of insight meditation teachers <clears throat> in 2009, I think it was. It actually took place at Guy House, so it happens every I don't know, three, three years, something like that, three or four years. And it kind of rotates between three, maybe four centers, IMS and Spirit Rock and maybe Bjattenberg, I can't remember, um, around the world. And that year... It was at Guy House, and um, maybe, I don't know, 80, 80 insight meditation teachers, I can't remember. Um, very uh, senior ones, all the way down to very, very new teachers. And uh, from all over the world. And, um, well, actually, mostly, mostly Europe and America. Um, <coughs> USA. Uh, so... Part of that um, group, we had like four, three or four days together, I think, and there were different discussion groups that were um, sort of offered. Um, so, so periodically we would break and certain themes would be offered and then the people interested in this theme would go and make a little group and discuss it for a while and people interested in another theme would go and make their little group and discuss it. And one day, one of the themes that was offered was Eros. So, uh, there's a couple of things to me that are interesting uh, about what happened. One is that it was by far (laughs) the biggest discussion group. So there was enormous interest in that topic, so much so that actually I think we the, the the group of people, the subgroup of the larger group that w- that were interested in Eros and elected to go into that group, had to be divided into three to make it uh, to make them manageable discussions and interesting and worthwhile. Um, so I was in a group uh, that I think had at least ten people in it, and there were maybe two others like that. So that was the first thing. Look how much interest there was in this topic um, in Buddhist practitioners, Buddhist teachers, insight meditation teachers, already in 2009. And partly is is, is because so little is said in it, uh, about it, in in, in our tradition. Um, So that was the first thing that was interesting. The second thing to me that was interesting was so we gathered in our group of let's say ten people I can't remember ten and um, <clears throat> ten teachers 
And uh, a few of us, uh, several of us, said, well, hold, hold on, before we get into this, can we actually uh, just kind of say or agree what we mean by eros? Um, and immediately it became very apparent that um, there was no common... We had come to this group with a, quite a large range of what people thought eros meant. Um, or what it meant to them. No one was particularly attached to it means this or anything like that, but there was really um, not a clarity or a common, uh, a common uh, shared, shared meaning even. So I remember one teacher um, just seemed to equate it with desire in general. And if I understood her correctly, she was saying that her her approach to this was, again, not, not very conventional dharma, but it's more like, let the students have their desires. So if you want that chocolate cake, have the chocolate cake. If you want this or that, have it. And in having it and feeling it and exploring it and going into that experience, um, over time, uh, this was the theory, that, that their, um, their desires would mature. And so instead of being caught up with superficial and um, kind of unhelpful desires, there would be this maturation through actually going into the desire, living it, experiencing, tasting, etc., following the thread of desire. And there would be this maturation until uh, they would get clear and um, centered on their deepest heart's desires. So starting with the Mars bars and eating them and whatever, eventually eventually there would be this um, funneling down and natural maturation process that would help. Now that's probably not a fair summary of what she was saying, and I might have misunderstood. But anyway, she seemed to equate eros and desire. And another teacher... Um, uh, made the distinction, uh, saying, this is all very well, this is a little later in the group, saying, Eros, what I'm more interested in th- is in Thanatos, he said. And Thanatos, for some of you will know, is another Greek word, Eros is a Greek word. And in, um, <clears throat> I think it's Freudian psychoanalytic theory, um, Eros is sometimes equated with the life instinct, the instinct to want to live, and contrasted with Thanatos, the the drive towards death, the death instinct, which Freud introduced later into his psychoanalytic theory. And this teacher was saying, uh, interestingly, he came to the group um, to hold the other pole, if you like. I'm interested in Thanatos, in the death instinct. And I don't think he meant death per se, more as in um, the unfabricating that we were talking about, the movement away uh, t- towards a kind of um, dissolution, nibbana, in that in the traditional sense, and uh, related but very different to that, and I can't remember what order this happened in. Another teacher, um, th- there were quite a few senior teachers in this group, by the way. Um, another teacher um, said that the Buddha's primary interest, or his, he was trying to um, persuade people, that the Buddha's primary interest was in addressing um, Mara, the sort of primordial, um, uh, if you like, archetypal villain in the Pali Canon, Mara. Um, And Mara actually means death. Um, And so the Buddha was interested in Amara, which is also uh, a a word that's in the Pali Canon, less commonly, but it's there. Amara, which 
this teacher was saying is in contrast to Mara, because it's a negation, Ah is not death, therefore it means life. So what the Buddha is really teaching is life, live, um, be, be in your life, etc. Et and uh, uh, the sort of elevation of, well, she pointed this out to him, but but the, the elevation of this concept of life, that it becomes a kind of um, uh, substitute for an idea of God or divine, which this teacher was very much against. Um, but there was this <coughs> equation of eros with uh, life, uh, as opposed to uh, death, and the Buddha was very interested in life, and, and uh, the, the, the sort of... Um, Praise of life, if you like. And it turned out that the uh, person, I think, who even suggested the topic in general at first, uh, when it came to her turn, what she um, meant by Eros, she was actually quite unclear and, and sort of said she didn't know, but we sort of just tried try to elicit from her a little bit. And it turned out that what she really meant was that when she was teaching, she found that she... Um, kind of got into a mode where there was very little humor and very very little sort of um, joke joke telling etc and um, uh, and and more than that there was very kind of not the, the juiciness of humor so that's what she meant so there's a huge range and I don't think uh, <laughs> of course came even to a conclusion about what we were talking about but um, uh, which is oftentimes the problems with these with these kind of groups, but um, but uh, that was another thing that was interesting to me that there was no clarity even about what 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 is meant. So this is why a little bit I want to go into this partly because it's a topic that people are interested in, and maybe especially people who've been practicing a long time. Why? Because they recognise the the lacuna there, the gap, um, presumably. Um, in the teachings around this subject, and secondly, we, we can't really go into it until we until we kind of start to say, what are we talking about here, or can we decide what we're talking about and see where that leads leads us. So, <clears throat> eros, uh, as we are using it on this retreat, um, and as I would I would uh, want to conceive of it. Um, it certainly has a relationship with desire, uh, with the notion of desire. The notion of eros and the notion of desire are clearly related, but let us say, and we can come back to this, that eros is um, a kind of desire, specific, it's still very wide what it can mean, but it's uh, a specific kind of desire. So a subset of desires are erotic desires, if you like. And desire, if it's not already... Uh, clear to you or clear from the, uh, the the first few talks that we gave, desire is very interesting and not simple. Uh, and desire in the Dharma is also not simple. So I don't think we really went into this in the first uh, three talks, but um, the Buddha lists uh, in, in these, uh, you know, great lists that he comes up with, and factors of awakening and this and that, um, there's a list called the four bases. 
the four bases of uh, the sometimes of power or success or accomplishment, and desire is one of those. So it's listed, um, and the Buddha talks about it as lot a lot. Um, it's listed if you want to if you want samadhi, if you want to develop the jhanas, if you want to develop the brahma viharas, if you want awakening, desire is a basis for that, and he lists it and points with this is necessary. It's important to develop this, it's important to give some intention to this, it's important to be skillful with one's desire. He does not say, just let go, do not cling, uh, don't have, drop your desires, etc. And anyone um, just flicking through, again, the Pali Canon, the uh, collection of the original Buddha's teachings, was how often words like striving and exertion uh, etc. come up. I've forgotten the exact Pali words, but um, he uses the language of striving, of ardent desire, etc. really, uh, really uh, frequently, really, really frequently. Um, and just, if you take the example of j- just of his life, he's a, a paradigm, a paramount example of someone um, really dedicated, really desiring, with a, what we would actually, most people nowadays in our culture would regard as an extreme passion for, uh, in his case, for realization. And he taught the middle way between, um, well, actually, different kinds of middle way, but his middle way in terms of um, uh, the passion for awakening was not uh, really what most people these days uh, w- would would consider a middle way. It was quite extreme in terms of his dedication, his devotion, his passion, his hunger and desire for realization, for awakening. So as I said, all this... Um, what we're talking about on this retreat and the teachings about eros and desire has a context. Now, um, there's also the context of, sort of, of uh, things that have in areas and themes um, in the teachings that have interested me very much over the years and that I have um, tried to share with, with others over the years as well. So, um, I've talked in the path, past... Um, if I remember, there's a talk called Passion and Desire on the Path, uh, others about wise relationship to practice, I think it's called, and wise effort, looking at more the micro-movement of effort and desire in, um, for example, samatha practice and jhana practice and that kind of thing. Um, other talks I can't remember. I, I, I think I might try on this retreat and do something that might be a little annoying, but hopefully is more helpful than annoying, and... Um, mention other places where you can find more about certain um, <clears throat> uh, strands or elements of teaching uh, that we're gonna, you know, are involved in what we're talking about. I'm gonna mention, but maybe not f- fill out more, so that if you want more, you can, you, you, you have a place to look. Um, on this retreat, so I've talked about that before. Um, very interesting to me, the, the, the passion for the path, the passion on the path, the passion for awakening, the desire for um, to unfold certain experiences and insights and uh, how that comes into samadhi practice and metta practice and all that. So on this retreat, I also want to go into that, but specifically also, you know, why? Here's a question that to me is interesting. We're going to unpack, I'm going to 
reflect on this because it's wrapped up in what we're talking about. Why is it that some people have a great passion and choose a path, or if you say a version of Buddha Dharma, that allows a great passion for realization, for deep experiences, deep insight, deep openings of consciousness. Why is it that some people have that passion and choose a version among the different versions that are sort of on the spiritual supermarket shelf, even within insight meditation, and choose a version of it that allows their passion and even allows the pain that can come with that passion. There's a pain the Buddha talked about, the, the, uh, I can't remember his word for it, but the, um, let's say the pain, the, the pain of the, uh, of the contemplative, I think he called it, um, in, in a, in a sutta somewhere in the Pali Canon about equanimity. And he doesn't say, in regard to the, 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 the meditator, the contemplative, who hears about other people awakening, who wants awakening but is not there yet, he, just, he doesn't say, just relax, let go, don't, don't desire, drop it, too, too much passion. He doesn't say that. He said, yeah, that's how it is, until you realize. What you need to do is keep going until you realize, then your passion will be, will be uh, quenched. So it's often quite a different message or, uh, that we're getting or interpretation that we're putting on the teachings. So why is it that some have this passion and some choose a version that allows that passion even, even when it's, it's painful and some don't? Some don't seem either to have that passion or, or move away, choose a version where it just, it just um, bypasses, if you like, or tranquilizes or deflates that passion. And some choose um, a path or a version of the Dharma where actually not a lot of passion is needed. The vision, the notion or idea or fantasy of awakening involved is actually um, not that remarkable. It's not. It's almost something for your spare time, if you like. It's. Um, it's not not really a big deal. It's quite a small vision of awakening. Uh, and some people um, don't seem to have an interest or a desire. There's not much libido, if you like, um, towards awakening uh, in, in general. They don't talk about it. They don't listen to talks that mention it. When it's talked about, they'll just lose interest. They'll actually say, I've heard many people say to me, um, I'm just not interested. Um, uh, so that's interesting too to me. Why? What's going on there? What's going on um, either in relation to those notions or in relation to the self or in relation to the desire, etc., to the notion of desire? Some have, um, on the contrary, a very high bar for what awakening means. And if I, um, when I place myself in a more traditional sort of uh, interpretation of, of Dharma, I would say my, um, my uh, where I set the bar for what awakening means is, is really quite high in relationship to uh, where others set it in terms of what stream entry is and all that stuff, if you know those terms. And some people, and again I would also include myself again sort of at the edge of, of Dharma, um, would even conceive of an endlessly 
um, an endlessly, if you like, uh, expanding, not quite receding, but endlessly expanding notion of awakening. So in talks like in praise of restlessness, um, uh, I've talked about this and questioning awakening and, that, and other talks. Um, there is so that the desire is always there. The flame of desire never goes out because there's always more. There's always a greater expansion. There's always more um, depth and diversity and range to what awakening uh, is and can be. There's always new horizons of awakening opening up. So why 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 all these differences in in uh, people? Is it is it just differences of personality? Soul differences, if you like. Is it conditioning? Uh, you know, whether that's in terms of per- per- personality or education or what people have been exposed to, the kinds of teachings or the kind of culture or the kind of family. Uh, is it um, early childhood uh, w- wounding, for example, that um, in, in how one expressed one's passion and one's love and one's desire and the, the nakedness of that that the infant has, um, often that comes out quite un, un, uninhibited um, in, in infancy, often. Um, is it that there was a wounding there in something in school or with the family or whatever, whatever it is that, that caused one to block and inhibit uh, one's desire, one's uh, libido, one's uh, passion. So all of this, um, actually, we're going to talk about more. These are, to me, these are interesting questions. Interesting questions. The psychology involved in in all of this. Um, why some people like that? Why why others different? Why why people go for this kind of path or that kind of path or that kind of notion of awakening or whatever it is? So I want to include it over the. Um, over the course of this of this retreat, very much we'll return to that periodically. Um, in the past, I think a few years ago, I gave a, a couple of talks called "The Beauty of Desire," <clears throat> part one and two, I think. And um, uh, in, if I remember, in the th- second part of that, I um, introduced um, something that I discovered in practice. Um, where there's a certain way of practicing with desire, um, even if it's a desire not for awakening, for something else, um, where it might at first be uncomfortable and bring dukkha, but there's a way of practicing that doesn't dissolve it, that respects it, opens it up more, and practicing in that way, actually um, respecting the desire and, if you like, empowering it um, without necessarily acting on it, it's talking about meditation here, um, practicing this way leads to an experience where the desire does not bring dukkha, quite the opposite, quite the opposite. It brings a kind of um, fulfillment and opening of the being. So that the whole, again, the whole way we tend to think about desire and even if it's a good thing, it inherently brings um, some degree of suffering because there's tension. Not so simple, not so simple. And be revisiting and actually elaborating more on that material as part of this retreat, as part of what we're calling the alchemy of desire. And uh, in the in the in the first three talks, hopefully it was clear that the whole idea um, of l- l- trying to live a life of non-clinging, trying to live without craving and clinging, um, just let go of everything, etc. In that simplistically understood 
um, way has several problems, which I'm not going to repeat now. Um, so that too is part of the context. Um, and also, again, um, it's very much, uh, what we're talking about on this street is very much in the context of um, the exploration, the elaboration, and the expansion of what I've been calling imaginal practice. It's related to tantric practice, but different. Um, and so I have talked, um, actually, a fair amount already um, about Eros um, in, in, in the context of imaginal practice. <clears throat> Um, and uh, one set of talks, I remember, uh, what's it called? An Ecology of Love, uh, in I think three or four parts, and talked about this dynamic, which we're really, really going to elaborate on a lot in this retreat because it's so central, so uh, such a powerful um, conceptual framework, and it opens up all kinds of things, allows and gives a basis to all kinds of avenues. Um, the what I'm calling the soul-making dynamic of the or the eros-psyche-logos dynamic, and I will explain uh, more about that on this retreat, but um, and and talk quite a bit, bring everything back to that quite a bit. But um, it's already been explored. So again, that's part of the context through imaginal practice. On this retreat, um, uh, in a way, um, it's similar material, but now to what. I've, explore before it in magical practice, but now um, want to expand that piece about Eros, elaborate more um, regarding Eros and its place and its potential, um, both in imaginal practice, what we've been calling imaginal practice, <coughs> and um, but also uh, in, in the path and for the path as a whole and what that might mean for the path and what kind of paths that opens up. So that's a little bit of the context, but uh, there's more even, because we could say, again, why, why bother? Why uh, introduce this other word, eros, when we have lots of, uh, lots of words, as, as we elaborated, I think, in the, in the part one of the first talk? Um, why bother? Well, that's a good question. It's really a good question. Do we really need another concept here? Um, let me read you something. Um, Someone I uh, didn't know sent me an email um, sometime in 2015. It was a little, uh, a little while before I got ill. And uh, so just this arrived in my uh, forwarder from Guy House out, out of the blue to me um, by uh, a man who, who lives in the Yukon in Canada. Uh, so uh, it's the Arctic Circle, I think. Um, <clears throat> And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll read you all the email just because there's so much insight here and it's so in what he's saying and um, he, he captures a lot um, of the themes that we're going to touch on and highlights the necessity and in a way answers this question of, of, of why bother. So I'll, I'll read it all. If you can l listen quite carefully because it's very well, you know, very well articulated, very, very beautifully written and and as I said, a lot of insight packed into what he's saying um, in all kinds of ways. So, <clears throat> uh, uh, dear Rob, m my name is X. Uh, you don't need to know his name. And, uh, and we've never met. 
I, by the way, I asked his permission to uh, to to use this email and teaching, and he was really fine with that. And um, I'll, I'll say this now, and I hope you can remember this because I won't say it every time. When I use examples from other people um, in the past, if you have heard me do that, or in this retreat, or in the future, generally speaking, I'm mean, almost without exception. I've asked the person involved if I could. Um, uh, and, uh, and and they have said yes, um, almost without exception. Um, okay, so um, my name is X, uh, and we've never met. Um, I have recently been reading your book and listening to some of your talks, as recommended by my, my current teacher, Y. Uh, interesting stuff, okay? <laughs> Um, I found myself being challenged and derailed by some of your approaches to the Dharma, often in, in a quite uncomfortable manner. This isn't really the bit that I want to read to you, but, um, but this is actually relevant, so I'm going to read it anyway, it's just short. Um, this made me realize how easily I tend to align my whole perspective with certain specific sets of ideas and points of view without daring to shake it up. But you woke up the rebel in me, the iconoclast, and I'm grateful for this. Because that's not so... Well, it, it is relevant, but not, not the main part. It's really this. <clears throat> so he continues. I'm quite new to the Buddhist path, having only been formally practicing for about three years now. But I dive straight into it. I've spent most of the last year as a monk, both in Myanmar and France, before disrobing with the idea of closing my worldly life and ordaining again this upcoming fall. I was quite committed to the idea until I fell in love with a girl who came out of nowhere and disheveled my whole world. Classic story, apparently. Now, obviously, from the monk's perspective, this is the worst thing I could have done. But somehow, I can't really buy into that. Not just because romance is so sweet and compelling but mostly because of my intuition that there is something deeper running underneath lust and love, something wider than her and me, something so beautifully alive that maybe it shouldn't be renounced so quickly. It's that same intuition that flared up every time I have fallen in love, the feeling that I'm playing a game that is beyond us, that the torrent in my chest is just running through me, unaffected by matter or time, untamed by anybody, that I'm just here as a temporary vehicle for a desire that has never begun nor ceased stretching out toward the beloved. So my specific love stories become just some personified renditions of a myth essentially unspoken and inexhaustible. There's so much... uh, inside beauty in, in what he writes and, and so re- relevant to the themes that we're going to be um, un- unraveling, unpacking, elaborating on. But he continues, and this is why I wanted to write to you, to write you, because I have never heard anyone else attempting to reconcile romantic love with the Dharma and I would like to explore this possibility in order to avoid fragmenting my life into discrete arenas. I can't honestly bring myself to set up desire and freedom against each other as mutually exclusive principles, however much this seems to be insisted upon in the Dharma, and this has been a huge difficulty in my recent attempts to engage fully with practice. 
I would like to start imagining an experience of desire or lust that would exceed the lack and the compulsion to fill it in, that would be unconditioned by pain without having to impose an artificial stance of dispassion and sacrifice a dynamic force of the human heart for a peace maybe too sterile. Dot, dot, dot. And he continues, Unfortunately, I feel ill-equipped for such an undertaking. My heart just dramatically bouncing from an inclination towards disenchantment tranquility to one of stormy passion and unreasonable attachments, constantly throwing myself off balance, completely invested into one configuration or the other. I don't really know where to start. As of now, I have recently let myself be overwhelmed by a crazy and beautiful romance. I find this really moving. Uh, All of it. Uh, Overwhelmed by a crazy and beautiful romance to the point of neediness and jealousy. And I want to open this up, to let it breathe, to bring some freedom within the tension of desire itself. So I'd like to ask you if you would have any advice, any lead into how I could directly practice with this explosive heart of mine. Thank you kindly and please accept my best regards. So beautiful, beautiful email. And um, I was struck struck by this, of course, and and moved, a bit busy as I was at the time, moved to uh, write back and suggest we um, arrange a time to speak. Uh, and, and we spoke but just for about an hour, and um, and that was actually all we had uh, the chance to do before before I got ill, um, quite out of the blue as well, and uh, had to cut down on most of my teaching. Um, so he said while we were talking that um, before falling in love this time, he thought he'd left all that behind him and was now traveling a different path and and I was the image of that path and he mentioned the the hermit in solitude um, in the peace of the woods or the mountains and uh, I asked him is it peace you're after Um, uh, and um, he he said freedom from ruts and from the fear of uh, the fear of engaging there's a lot here Uh, and we um, talked about um Imaginal sensibility, imaginal practice, um, the uh, what this meant about self-view, the possible plurality within self-view. Um, the possibility of regarding uh, desire as not just restlessness, as we touched on in, in the first talks. Um, was there uh, yes we, we really touched on the, 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 the possibilities of imaginal practice and also on working with the energy of desire as I was talking about in some of the um, beauty of desire talk, talks um, but we only could speak for an hour and it's such a huge um, subject that um, all, all I could do was kind of give give a few pointers really um, and suggest I think that we have uh, have some more uh, <coughs> contact at some point um, 
there was another piece actually that this woman that he was involved in this is part of the problem that initially instigated this woman that he was involved with um, was wanting uh, the relationship to be an open one in other words to be able to um, uh, have sex with other people etc that they both that they both uh, were okay with that and she wanted that and he was very unsure about that um, and and uh, very ambivalent about that. Um, but just pointed out to him that um, actually, although that's certainly an issue to, to explore and to, to um, ponder, um, whether it ended up being an open relationship or not, um, and even whether the relationship continued or ended is actually not the most deeply relevant thing. The more fundamental and universal questions he was asking all this, they won't go away, whether or not the relationship's open, whether or not it um, it, it continued or not. So, um, when we say, why bother? Why bother uh, with all this? Well, that email uh, gives... Uh, gives one, one, you know articulates really really well one one of the reasons um, it wasn't enough the contact we had was was not enough to um, really allow those kind of questions and the wrestling that he's talking about to really be opened up and, and supported um, and hence this retreat and hence the, the teachings um, on this retreat and the the attempt here because usually in insight meditation, that's the tradition he's coming from. Um, in terms of sexual um, images and energies that arise, um, you know, as we as we talked about, either they're just regarded essentially as kilesa, defilement, um, or distraction in meditation, um, or there's a sort of slightly more charitable and um, open, softer view that just says, notice them, allow them, but certainly don't encourage them. So notice, allow, in the spirit of openness, but not the encouragement. They're, they're not, um, sexual and erotic images and energies are not regarded as anything, uh, having any real positive place on the path. Um, only so much in the context that anything is because, has a place on the path because we're attempting in a certain, a certain framing or vision of what Dharma is to be open to all things. Um, still, underneath that, it's, it's better if, uh, this is the subtext, we can be open to all things, but it's better if these things don't arise. It's easier and basically um, just uh, kind of let go of them. Um, maybe there's a kind of um, view of equality. They're just like anything else to be open to, to be let go of, but essentially it's like everything else. Don't cling, don't don't get involved, don't create anything there. So, uh, insight meditation, uh, one of its strengths is um, how much emphasis it puts on the feet. How many times have you heard that on retreat? You know, walking meditation, the feet on the ground, standing meditation, um, groundedness, um, can you feel your bum on the cushion, etc. Really, really important, you know. And how much emphasis also in insight meditation, again, one of its beauties, one of its strengths on the heart, the openness of the heart, the capacities of the heart, the cultivation and, and the centrality of the heart. 
And more and more in insight meditation um, circles, there's an inf- emphasis on what we could call the head, um, in the sense of s- slowly a few a few strands within the within the insight meditation and um, broader insight meditation, really emphasising study of the text, etc. Um, so feet, heart, and head. Other bits might be missing. <laughs> Does it, it, can it involve our hips? Feet, heart, head, hips. Uh, so again, th- there's a kind of lacuna there, certainly around sexuality and uh, that kind of erotics. But, but I really want to say, you know, when we use the word eros, um, it includes sexuality uh, in in the way we're meaning uh, what we're meaning by eros. So we include sexuality, we include sexual attraction, sexual energy, etc. Um, but it's actually much, much more than that. We're talking about something much more fundamental. And also that can be um, both very intense and very subtle. So um, uh, well, sec- sexual energy and sexual attraction can also be very subtle, but even more subtle than that. We're talking about something as a notion that's actually um, more basic and, and, and often more subtle. <coughs> but again, um, you know, not to over-labor the point, but why introduce this concept of eros? Why distinguish something called eros from craving or greed or desire in general? Um, well, it's there already. Uh, eros is where um, meaning that term, what we mean by eros, is already functioning every day in our lives. Um, It's already part of our experience, as we'll explain. Um, Making the distinction draws out something um, that otherwise might not, um, well, might not be so clear to us. And as I said, that might shut doors um, if it's not so clear, if we don't draw it out. Drawing, making a distinction, or any kind of distinction, amplifies something. It amplifies by distinguishing this from that, A from B, um, A and B get amplified, or one of A and B gets amplified, gets magnified. It's like you get to put it under a mag- magnifying glass, it gets clearer. Um, setting it apart allows us to investigate it, to take it as a theme of investigation. If I don't delineate it in the first place, I can't take it as a theme of investigation. It can't. The delineation is the beginning of opening something up, like a, what would an image be, like a... Like a um, I'm not sure if this will work as an image, but like like a like a tear or like getting your foot in the door, you can begin then to pry open the door or tearing a, a fabric to 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 re- a veil to release to re- uh, reveal something. Um, setting it apart allows us to get in uh, to investigate to become interested in it, uh, and then we can see how it works. What is this thing? How does it work? Um, and where does it lead? This thing that we're going to call eros, um, because, and this is one of our central contentions, eros um, will lead to um, different experiences, to different ends than craving leads to. 
that leads to ends and experiences other than the one's craving leads to. It opens up, if you like, regions of soul, to use a certain language. It Eros is very connected with soulfulness, with um, what we're going to call soul-making, um, uh, which we'll, I'll explain more what we mean by that, but for now let's just say um, the widening and deepening of a sense of sacredness. The widening and deepening and diversification of this of our sense of sacredness. Um, but also has very much this word soulmic has much to do with meaningfulness and resonance and depth and dimensionality and beauty and all kinds of things. Eros is connected with a sense of divinity and with what we've been calling in, in past retreats cosmopoesis, the the, the, the very sense we have, the vision, the perception of the, the world, the cosmos we live in, the cosmos about us, our very sense of existence. We're going to go into these terms, divinity and cosmovasis, uh, soul-making, etc., later um, in much more detail. Uh, because they're very woven into to this whole theme of eros. So that's one reason. It's in our life already, Eros. We already experience it. We just need to draw it out and investigate it and see where it leads because it does lead to somewhere other than where what we might call craving leads to. A second reason why why make this delineation is, is to um, hopefully establish or at least the potential, um, dr- highlight the potential of opening to a recognition of the sacredness of Eros itself. The sacredness of Eros itself. Again, this is something we're going to come back to a lot. Um, the sacredness of Eros itself, we can see that. And and it's very different to see that Eros is sacred rather than as a defilement. And that includes also the sacredness, or at least the potential sacredness of sexuality. Sacredness never resides in this or that object or thing. Um, we sacralize, we make something uh, or other sacred through our relationship with it. So there's the possibility of sacralizing sexuality um, rather than just viewing eros or sexuality as a defilement or as leading inevitably to defilement. And all this, as I said, is not really so uh, adequately addressed in, in, in the Dharma uh, at present uh, for the most part. Um, we talk about sexuality and desire, but we talk a lot about desire, but in a negative way, mostly, um, and talk about sexuality, but very little, except in terms of ethical prohibitions, for example, the precepts, um, or we admit, it's admitted that it's, uh, you know, within sort of typically assumed limits, it's admitted that it's um, an aspect of life, predominantly lay life, but still there for monastics, um, but there isn't really this exploration, inquiry. It's not really opened up, as I said, as part of the path. As we, uh, again, mentioned already uh, at least once, you know, we have this, most people have a desire for romantic love, or most people are involved in relationships or in marriages, perhaps. And a finer discrimination is needed there. This is not meta. I cannot reduce a romantic love relationship or a marriage to meta. There's something more involved, part of, or that needs to be involved, and part of that more is is what we're going to call eros, what we're calling eros. 
And if I'm interested in that, if I'm really interested in really bringing a fullness of um, uh, investigation, and if I'm really interested in romantic love and romantic partnerships being being really integrally part of the practice, then this this um, brings all kinds of um, inquiries. For example, in a long-term relationship, what keeps the eros alive? What, what stifles it? What kills it? What erodes it? What just allows it to fritter away? And what keeps the eros alive in a long-term relationship? So there's that <clears throat> second a second reason that the, the resacralizing of um, sexuality, love, um, but also of eros and making it more part of the path, uh, integrally, uh, fully, richly. But really, with all this, um, and a third reason why why uh, what are we doing? Why make this discrimination of something called eros is really uh, related to what I said before. We're really I'm interested in creating uh, or opening an, <coughs> an area or a direction of investigation. So um, I certainly don't want to just sort of, for instance, assert something like um, the sacredness of Eros. I am telling you Eros is sacred, and then, you know, so what? Some people will agree, some people will disagree. It's it's pointless. What I'm much more interested in is, is a, a domain and a dimension for um, really a much freer, more open and penetrating inquiry. Dharma inquiry. And always in Dharma inquiry, always there's something really fundamental to see. Uh, there's a principle that how we view something Always we see that how we view something affects the perception of that something. The ideas that I have, the preconceptions, the conceptions, the uh, relationship with the something that I'm investigating, the area of inquiry, affects my perception of that something. And affects the experiences, the related experiences that unfold, that can unfold, or that will unfold. So all that's just it's, it's uh, to do with dependent arising. The view, the way of looking affects, it shapes the perception, fabrication. <coughs> we've, <coughs> we've talked about that as part of, uh, part of what we talked about before. Now part of that, so, so we really have to see this dependent arising, how I view something affects um, my perception of that thing. So that must be part of the way that I'm inquiring. And a part of that, a part of the investigation, is perhaps this question, well what happens how does it affect this whole thing called Eros if I view it as sacred, even if I just try and view it, even just a little, just entertain the idea that it might be sacred? So that's a sort of subset of a subset of the investigation. What happens if? We're not asserting anything here, but it's all really in the spirit of, um, of investigation. <coughs> and... Uh, I'll say it one more time. Um, we mean by eros something um, including, but much more than sexuality, much more than sexual attraction or energy or sexual interactions between um, between people. Um, you can have, there exists, there arises for us um, an erotic connection or erotic connections, plural, with the earth, 
uh, with a tree or a piece of land, um, with the stars, with um, the cosmos, erotic connection with the divine, erotic connection, uh, relationship with the senses, and erotic sensibility and erotic connection with materiality. Uh, certainly with another human being, but not and uh, not only humans, with other um, other living beings, don't have to be. Certainly, also not just with others, but we can have, and hopefully we do have. And we're going to elaborate on this: an erotic connection with oneself, an erotic connection with oneself, erotic connections (plural) with oneself and aspects of oneself, faces of oneself. The self spaces, or self faces, whatever, there can and hopefully is an erotic um, view, an erotic connection with the path and with the idea or the vision, the fantasy, the notion, the concept of awakening. Certainly, always there's an erotic connection with imaginal figures, even when it seems like there isn't, and there's even um, the possibility of erotic connection with ideas and concepts. So Eros um, pervades very broadly. Right? We mean much more than sexuality here. Um, Eros can also uh, be, or can seem to be, primarily, at different times, it can seem to be something primarily energetic, or primarily physical, um, embodied, if you like, um, or primarily imaginal or primarily intellectual? Can at different times be or seem to be primarily all those things? Actually, I would say <coughs> it always involves all of these aspects. Eros always involves um, energy, what we're going to call the energy body and the energetics. The, it involves some kind of embodiment, some kind of embodiment, um, or relationship with body and views of the body and sense of the body. Um, it always involves the imaginal, and it always involves ideation, intellect, concept, what we're going to call logos. Always involves all that. So it's, it's already something multidimensional, and we're going to go into this more. And, as I said, whenever there is a sense of soulfulness, that kind of richness, resonance, depth, dimensionality, beauty, meaningfulness... Um, uh, in, in in our existence, in the being, whenever there is soul making, sacredness in our existence, eros is involved. Eros is involved whenever there's soul making. Now, I think it's fair to say. I think it's obvious, maybe important to say as well, that different people at different times will um, find these investigations that we're going into around eros and soul-making um, more or less interesting. So this, to me, is interesting in itself. Um, it seems to me, it does seem to me, that people differ um, in the flavors or the characters, if you like, of the ways eros or um, libido, if we say life force, um, expresses in their lives. Um, they differ in the flavors, the characters, the way eros expresses in their lives. The fire, if you like, if eros is a kind of fire, um, 
the fire of Eros looks and burns differently. People's soul fire burns and looks uh, differently one one to another. There's a, there's a, there's quite a range there. You know, the flaming passion, and also at different times, a flaming passion, a very steady, quiet, small, but unquenchable flame, uh, the, or the raging fire, whatever, you know, leaping from one thing to another, the flames. Um, it looks and burns differently. But people also differ, it seems to me, at least it seems to me, in the <coughs> amount, strength, and depth, if you like, of eros, of the eros or the libido uh, that flows through them in their life or into them, if, if you like. Differ in the amount, strength, or depth. So this also is complex. I mean, some people just, some people are like this and some people are like that. And there's, there's a range. But it's also a fact, and we touched on this before, um, that for all kinds of reasons, which also are interesting, eros and libido, or life force, um, can be, and often is, blocked in our lives, in different ways, inhibited at times, or in certain situations, or certain certain um, expressions, or along certain lines are blocked, whereas others are free, or... Um, it's, it's, it more, there can be a more chronic and more pervasive blocking or inhibition of the eros and the libidos. And it's not so much that a person really, so to speak, is just a certain character or style. Something's blocking or inhibited or, or uh, crushed or whatever there. Still, despite all that, despite the varying differences uh, of, of interest, um, between different people at different times and all that, um, I, I'd say that Eros is a necessary and integral um, aspect or element, if you like, of what we're going to be calling soul-making, what I have in the past called soul-making. And, th- and therefore, um, an inquiry into Eros is important for anyone interested, at all interested um, or, or devoted to soul-making. It's just part of what one needs to consider and explore and open up and go into and allow and understand and support and nourish. Question. So on this uh, retreat, on this course, you know, the the intention of the teachings is really, um, if you like, to open a door, open doors. And I mentioned that it's possible that certain doors are actually shut or uh, even locked shut in the way that we're conceiving um, not just of Dharma but of life and of existence and of who we are and what the world is and what uh, existence is. So the aim, broadly speaking, of these teachings, this set of teachings, is to open doors and to sketch, at least sketch, begin to sketch a path for those who would move through these doors and uh, move into new territory, um, for those who would who would like to travel um, certain paths and to offer um, uh, a map, at least the beginnings of a map, um, loosely speaking, a map, a frame of reference and uh, light certain beacons for navigation for those also who already find themselves in uncharted territory 
around eros, around desire. They're already there, and and they need some kind of orientation, some kind of way of thinking, and and ways of practicing practical tools, practical subtleties of practical differentiations and navigation and steering, as all practices need. And some, as we mentioned, already see that maybe the more um, usual or narrow sort of ways we can interpret the Dharma or understandings of Dharma or frameworks may not be enough or are not enough to open up this territory. And some people already sense, as uh, in, in, in the beautiful email I, I read earlier, um, already sense um, uh, a holiness in desire, the holiness of desire in in life or in certain areas or directions of desire and um, and also in imaginal practices, very common. But uh, they sense that holiness, but it's tricky. It's tricky and, and not easy, and it's complex and it's rich, and help is needed, and um, a conceptual framework is needed, and tools are needed, and distinctions and pra- practice um, instructions are needed, etc. Both on the cushion and in life and <clears throat> in relationship. So, um, again, back to context, these teachings um, sit within a larger context of wanting to open a path that integrates a lot of elements that um, we've already talked about over the last few years. Um, imaginal practice, soul-making, cosmopoesis, this re-enchantment of the cosmos, the poetry of perception, um, um, the, the, the experience uh, the experiences of and the senses of sacredness of divinity um, eros all all this we touched before and in fact I'm going to probably in the next talk um, attempt a kind of brief glossary of all these terms uh, hopefully that's helpful too um, this retreat as I said is a slightly different angle it's coming from the angle of eros emphasizing more the eros and and um, expanding on more what that means. But all this, um, hopefully, um, you can see how it is integrated with, it sits um, uh, fitted into, um, uh, tessellated with um, our usual, uh, maybe the more typical Dharma teachings about craving and letting go of craving and, and, and how craving leads to dukkha. It sits, it sits with that. You know, alongside, mixed with that, um, uh, in complement to that, um, and also the uh, much more radical teachings about um, investigating clinging and the whole spectrum of what that notion, that word means, clinging, and all the subtleties and the, the beauties of working with that in practice, letting go of clinging, moving up and down the spectrum of clinging, seeing what it does um, to the fabrication of the perception of self, other world time, etc., etc., really going deeply in practice and 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 uh, in the understanding, in the realization, the insight um, into the teachings of dependent origination at a very deep level, not not the more uh, common level, the very deep level, and and un, uh, un, uh, unfolding, if you like, the experience of the unfabricated and the emptiness of all things, um, so that existence is opened. And actually, uh, in uh, radical freedom, radical opening of the sense of existence, and also that, uh, and I've talked about this before, that understanding of emptiness 
um, to the, well, let's say this, it provides, it can provide a non-realist basis um, for all these other explanations um, and, and explorations that we're going into. Um, so that to the degree, to the depth that we um, kind of have taken to heart, understood uh, the teachings of emptiness, how much they've penetrated the, um, the heart and the understanding. Um, we can, to that degree, we can really practice a flexibility of ways of looking and also of conceptual frameworks. We can entertain different ideas and conceptual frameworks without having to believe in the reality of any of it. That any of these ways of looking are revealing a, a reality of this is how the world is, this is how I am, this is what the, the nature of things is. Um, or this idea is an idea, this con conceptual framework is the truth of things. So there's a real um, facility and flexibility of just moving between ways of looking, all kinds of ways of looking. Um, really, really broad range and all kinds of conceptual frameworks. So it's woven into into those integrated these teachings integrate into the usual Dharma um, teachings about craving and letting go um, and releasing dukkha and the much deeper teachings about dependent arising and emptiness and that forms a non-realist basis and all that is partly what allows excuse me what allows us to open up teachings of imaginal practice and if you like tantric teachings or I make a distinction there. Um, but Tantra is based on that understanding of emptiness. Absolutely, it's supposed to be, at least, as I've mentioned before. Um, so all this is integrated together, and as I mentioned, there's other possibilities through imaginal practice of, and through the understanding of Eros of having what I'll call a fuller, more adequate um, concept and perceptions of self, other, world, etc., um, existence, um, ways of relating and seeing and experiencing all that that are more soulful, more soul-making, conducive to soul-making, that widen our, as I said, and diversify our sense of sacredness, open our senses of beauty and uh, sacredness, divinity. So I hope you can see in all of this, and um, if not right now, at least at some point, you can see that um, this isn't really an eclecticism. I'm not sort of interested in just drawing different things together, tossing them in a pot, and uh, kind of for the sake of you know being interesting or, or, or just not being able to kind of being restless in in a in a not very uh, in, a, in a kind of more superficial way. I hope you can see at some point how integrated, as I said, all, all these teachings are. <clears throat> and, um, and if you like, how necessary, um, how inevitable um, many of these teachings are from us because of, uh, as I said, one, one way of understanding the Dharma unfolds a certain depth and a certain um, possibility, and, and that just keeps keeps unfolding in a kind of very necessary way. Um, so the necessary to what's gone before, but also necessary to our existence and to our practice um, for the future. So, you know, maybe more 
typical, if you like, Dharma psychology is a sort of more, <coughs> um, let's say, just the teaching of the links of dependent origination. We talked a bit about that. One of the immense strengths of the Buddha's teaching and Dharma teaching is that he kind of gives us a set of concepts and in a way they, they become ways of looking. That's what these concepts are. They become ways of looking. Um, but they serve to simplify. Uh, so Dharma concepts serve to simplify. Simplify because they fabricate less. So when I use a certain uh, set of concepts, for instance, there's less papancha. There's less of this crazy complexifying and um, uh, nonsense making, if you like. Um, entanglement. Um, but at a deep level... Uh, at a deeper level too, they 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 simplify in the sense that the Dharma concepts become ways of looking that move towards less and less fabrication. Less and less fabrication is a state of simplicity. So he's saying, he's saying, don't think about this, don't think about that. Think in this way, and look in this way. Adopt these ways of looking, and there's a disentangling, certain amount of simplifying. Um, both of the ways of looking by constraining the ways of looking to certain concepts, but also then in what is seen, of course. Um, and there's a, there's a simplifying in, in the perception of things. And that simplifying just goes deeper and deeper. So not just the simplicity of the isness, the, su- the so-called suchness of things and the vividness of that, um, but the simplicity of our life and then the simplicity of perception beyond the thingness of things as we go deeper and deeper into unfabricating and eventually into the something that is in effect so simple that even is or is not doesn't apply to it, the unfabricated. So, again, if I use a certain language of the soul, the, the psyche wants and needs, obviously, a, a kind of disentangling. And and it certainly um, wants that um, journey into perceiving less fabrication. But there are, so to speak, other dimensions or strata of the soul, we could use that language, of the psyche, that want something else. That want something else. And so other distinctions and delineations um, become necessary rather than just simplicity, 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 unfabricating, 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 unfabricated, rather than just the simplifying of that um, direction. There's so much the power of Dharma practice and Dharma concepts. Um, Other distinctions, other delineations become necessary. What is the difference between papancha and fantasy or image in the way we're using it? difference between daydreaming and fantasy and image? What's um, the difference between um, soul-making and the kind of simplicity of freedom that I've just talked about? What's the difference between eros and craving, or desire and eros? Um, What's uh, the difference between eros and love, or the Brahma-Viharas? Something, I'm going to make this contention, something I'm really going to come back to a lot on this retreat, uh, we're both going to come back to, something um, 
in us, something in the soul wants to know, wants to experience not just oneness, not just transcendence um, or the unfabricated, the transcendence of the unfabricated, nor just, quote, life as it is, as if there really even is a life as it is, um, as if such a thing exists, such a thing is possible to behold. We don't just want oneness, transcendence, or that uh, freshness of bare attention. Certainly we want more even than all that. Certainly more than the bare attention, I hope. Um, But also more than a dissolution in oneness, and also more than the transcendence of the unfabricated, even that. So, we need um, a kind of more elaborate, you could say, or a slightly more sophisticated um, psychology. We need a Dharma psychology that both recognizes that which is already present, but which needs to be, as I said, drawn out, amplified a little more, made, recognized. Uh, um, So the fact, for example, that Eros is more than uh, meta, it's not the same as craving. It's not even just wholesome desire or hitachanda or desire that leads to less suffering. We need to recognize something that's already present in our life that hasn't been drawn attention to yet, um, highlighted, drawn out, investigated. And uh, we need a slightly more more elaborate Dharma psychology because of the different kinds of of sacredness and the different realms of experience which are slightly more involved um, psychology that involves concepts like Eros um, can open up for us without which um, either these things these realms don't open up these directions don't open up or they uh, just get dismissed Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.